You are listening to the History Respawn Podcast. The HR Podcast is made possible by support from our listeners. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting our work by going to our Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. That's www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. This is Bob Whitaker. Welcome to History Respond. Today's episode considers Return of the Obra Dinn, the latest game from developer Lucas Pope, who also developed Papers, Please. Return of the Obra Dinn takes place on a British East India Company ship in 1807. The player takes on the role of an EIC insurance adjuster who boards the derelict Obra Dinn to discover the fate of the ship's now missing crew. The player must use a set of audio, visual, and documentary clues along with a fantastical time travel device called the Momentum Mortem, to solve the ship's various mysteries. To help me explore the world of the Oberdin, I've invited historian Megan Walker onto the show. Megan is a doctoral student at the University of Alberta, working on the history of the British Royal Navy during the Napoleonic era. She's particularly focused on the distribution and politics of mass-produced maritime clothes, as well as the uniforms of the Royal Marines. Her MA at Memorial University in Newfoundland was on the inventories of deceased seafarers in the British Merchant Marine during the 19th century. In many ways, playing Return of the Upper Den is like exploring a video game version of Megan's research. Megan, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Oberdin is already famous for its fantastical narrative and gameplay elements, which we'll discuss at the end of the show. But the game also includes several realistic touches from the Napoleonic era. In playing this game, what did you make of the game's depiction of this era of the Age of Sail? I like fangirled out about the ship model, actually. (laughs) The first thing I did was just like (laughs) run around. I didn't even look at the body. I just ran around the deck and like looked at things. I actually look at Mark Eisenbard Brunel in my research. So I was like squeeing about all the blocks in the rigging, which is like a really esoteric... (laughs) thing that someone would be excited about um Mm. but i'm that person (laughs) yeah the ship looks great i really and as the ship opens up and you you go back and you visit the ship with actual people in it it's a really great atmosphere you see the one of my favorite parts is um is the uh, hammock and seeing how close everyone lives together and and the sort of the lack of space and the animals being all around you and just like there and you can you can hear like a goat braying in the background and things and you and it just sort of gives you this yeah like these ships are really alive even though you're dealing with a dead ship at the end it's a great recreation of a vessel the other thing i was really impressed with was the actual crew complement the actual diversity of the crew i was really pleased with um seeing lascars and seeing uh, Chinese sailors and and Polynesians and um, African Americans. Uh, it was really great. Those people were totally all over ships at this period. Um, so it was really exciting to see that acknowledged on a game. And also, I have a note mm-hmm. here that says this game would be really boring if it was just trying to figure out the identities of like sixty white guys. <laughs> it would be really hard <laughs> and really dull. 
Yeah, and even within the the white guys uh, in the game, there's quite yeah. a bit of diversity, right? I mean, there's Englishmen, yeah. there's Scots, uh, there's somebody there's so from Wales, there's somebody from from uh, Denmark. No, uh, is there I'm, anybody from Canada? Um, I'm, I was kind of disappointed, but I wasn't really surprised. Uh, Canadians, they did do they did do deep sea like out of Britain, but they did tend to like sailing out of um, out of Nova Scotia and out of Quebec and out of Newfoundland yeah. as their their home cruise. They did a lot more specific trade, like going down into uh, Brazil for sugar and and because they were moving salt fish, a lot of it was salt fish. So so not strange that there aren't any Canadians on the ship, but I was really pleased to see like the the dynamic, like yeah, the Europeans, not just British uh, sailors, but Europeans and um, Russians and you know people from India and all over. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and crews are really diverse right into the right up to the First World War. And uh, they're bringing all sorts of cultural influence into London, these sailors. So this is the point where, for example, London gets its first Indian food restaurant and uh, shampoo is introduced to London. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank, thank goodness. <laughs> so, so different ideas about cleanliness and, and food are, are being imported because, of course, the the people who ran the East India Company were bringing spices home and sort of modifying them with British cuisine. But so there was a huge population of, of foreign seafarers. So uh, seafaring and naval engagements during the Napoleonic Wars are a really common backdrop for historical fiction. Uh, you know, for instance, I'm sure many viewers are familiar with uh, C.S. Forrester's Horatio Hornblower novels. Uh, or Patrick O'Brien's Aubrey and Martin uh, books. What do you think it is about this era of history that draws so much interest from fiction writers and now from game developers? Um, the short answer would be nostalgia. <laughs> the sea is such a it's been a site of nostalgia for a long time, and it really starts getting going in the late nineteenth century. But it has a lot to do with sort of a sense that there's this old world slipping away from us that we'll never get back which is true in some ways but it only conveniently ignores that we continue to have ships and continue to ship products and a lot of what goes on in modern shipping is still very similar to how it used to be except the ships aren't really the same technological ships but one of the fascinating things to me about this game are the fact that they look very similar to woodcut prints. So like about halfway through the game, I was just like, mm-hmm. oh, I know what this is reminding me of. It's reminding me of like woodcut prints that I would see in like retrospectives of Sailor Town where they would do woodcut prints. And obviously this was already backwards for the 1920s instead of getting photographs of places to have these like nostalgic wood prints in books that were also nostalgic snapshots of parts of London or parts of Liverpool or parts of New York that were, were no longer. So I like rushed out and got a, a copy of an autobiography I have that has wood cuts in it. And I was actually shocked to find that I had like, parts of the game and woodcuts that I could put side by side and like looked similar, like the scenes were similar even. So mm. it's, it's really funny to me that this game is nostalgic for like several things, which is 
the one bit graphics on like old Apple computers from the eighties. And also this like period of history where um, you could go to sea and everyone can die and no one would know what happened. And you have to deduce this with, you know, a magic (laughs) pocket watch. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the game mechanics. So, in this game, uh, you know, you uh, the kind of uh, moment by moment uh, mechanics involve using uh, the momentum mortem pocket watch to solve the game's mysteries, uh, and those relate primarily uh, to the fate of each crew member, what killed them, uh, and then who was responsible, uh, who or what was responsible for those deaths. And for me, I found this part of the game to play a bit like a historian simulator. Uh, in the sense that as a historian, as the player in the game, uh, you're coming to the scene at the end and you're using an incomplete set of audio, visual and documentary clues in order to discover the fate of each crew member. And Megan, I know that you've had some direct experience with researching the lives and deaths of merchant seamen in the 19th century. So I'm really curious, what did you make of the deductive process in Return uh, of the Overdue? I found Overdue? it the same as you. Like I found it absolutely fascinating and sort of a glimpse at how a historian works, minus some of the supernatural elements and also the actual game telling you that you got everything right, which is something we never have the luxury of in real life. <laughs> yeah, I would I would love to have that yeah. three fate, fates correct. <laughs> Uh, chime oh, come up in the so archive that would be amazing where i'm working in right now because i'm working at sort of, i'm working in um supplying clothes to the royal navy and there's so much stuff that i'm trying to work it by deduction because because there's just so much so many gaps in it and i was just like oh man if i could just have if i could just have something like some some magical compass tell me that this was the right date <laughs> for this thing (laughs) that would be so perfect but the actual combination of the image of the crew and the crew list itself and the moments of violence in the game is actually very similar to my master's work like less to do with the photograph and more to do with the combination of a violent action and the crew list so what I was doing is I was going through this massive database of British government documents called crew agreements it's basically like the crew list in the game except far more detailed it told you things like what they were going to eat for the the voyage um what their wages would be where they were from which is i guess included in the game their signatures so you can extrapolate ideas of literacy from whether they could or couldn't sign their names um and all sorts of fun details like that and one thing that you had to record is whether or not the sailor lived through the voyage so you were so you get a logbook additionally which is not something that's in the game but i guess is sort of represented by the the compass being able to go back in time and visit a moment of uh of action because generally what logbooks would record is moments of violence like a fight or a death or something significant that the government would want to know uh, that happened on the vessel. And what I was interested in is when sailors died, they left, uh, they were obligated to have their possessions inventoried. uh, And then those possessions would be sold to their crew members and the liquidated assets would be returned to their families. Unless they were in debt to the ship and then the ship 
got all their money. So I had one guy die of like um, disease in India. I think it was in Madras and they buried him. So if you are buried at sea, it's just like some canvas. They sew you into canvas and they throw you overboard. But if they bury you on land, they have to pay to bury you. So all his wages went towards his burial and nothing Mm. went home to his family. And it was just like this sad, (laughs) the sad story of this guy who had died so far away from home and had had a proper Christian burial, but it totally wiped out all his savings from like all his wages from the voyage and so you get these fascinating snapshots of of their material possessions when they died and it's really interesting that this game sort of follows that same sort of mechanic where I was like going through a database and literally searching out deaths in order to get these records of crew possessions which is one of the only ways and maybe one of the best ways that you can look at what a working man would own in the late 19th century. Mm. So our next question is about the East India Company, and it comes in from History Respawn patron David Schroeder. And he asks, how much was the EIC's activities in the 18th and 19th centuries directed by the crown? And if the company was setting its own direction independent of the crown, How did the Crown deal with conflict between the East India Company and other colonizers, such as France? Um, So I'm going to take a moment and take off my cap as a host and put on my cap as a British imperial historian and kind of do a little brief history of the East India Company. And this game is, you know, it's set in the early 19th century and it catches the East India Company, uh, of which the Oberdin and its crew are a part of. It catches the East India Company at a really interesting moment. Um, so, as the question kind of implies, you know, throughout the 18th century, the East India Company had been consolidating economic and then eventually political power in the subcontinent of India uh, throughout the course of the 18th century, and particularly by the mid to late 18th century, had really become the dominant uh, economic. Uh, and uh, political and also military power uh, in India uh, with the collapse of the Mughal Empire. Uh, Now, at the beginning of the 19th century, when this game uh, is set, it's an interesting moment because it's a moment when the British government is attempting to take a more, uh, I would say, not necessarily direct control over the company's action uh, in the 19th century, uh, but attempting to at least uh, keep a closer eye uh, on uh, the company's activities. Uh, and this is particularly because by the late 18th century, you've got a lot of concern, uh, not only uh, from Parliament and the Crown, uh, but also wider British society, uh, that the company's rule, the company's Raj uh, in India has become corrupt. Uh, and there's a lot of concern that the company's rapacious activities in the subcontinent Uh, will lead to a new series of wars against local rulers or perhaps uh, neighboring states or foreign powers. Uh, And this is all kind of uh, set around uh, the concern, the wider uh, cultural concern in Britain at the time with uh, the so-called nabobs. Uh, These are uh, employees of the East India Company who have uh, made a fortune uh, in uh, the subcontinent and they've returned back to England uh, and Britain more generally 
uh, to basically flaunt their wealth. And this kind of activity, especially in the late 18th century, uh, was seen as morally corrupting. Um, and there was a great deal of concern as to how these people came to this incredible amount of wealth. Um, and kind of one of the key lightning rods or one of the key uh, important moments uh, in this controversy involved uh, the East India Company's governor general of the subcontinent, a man named Warren Hastings. Uh, and in the late 18th century, uh, Warren Hastings was uh, put on trial uh, by uh, the EIC and by parliament uh, for corruption, basically. And so uh, because of Hastings' trial, because of this general concern about corruption as mismanagement uh, with the nabobs coming back home, Parliament instituted a number of restrictive laws on the company's activities uh, in the late 18th century. And the hope was that uh, these acts and these laws would prevent the EIC from becoming a danger to itself and then also to the British government by extension because you know the EIC had um, done a lot to promote British interest in the subcontinent during the 18th century. They had essentially taken over uh, you know, great swathes of the subcontinent for uh, British use. Uh, but at the same time, there was concern that if this corruption, if this rapacious capitalism continued on its same course, that it would actually endanger Britain because it would force Britain to get involved in a war that they weren't really interested in having, you know, either with uh, rebellious, um, uh, you know, local leaders or uh, with some other foreign power. Um, so by and large, you know, by the time this game is set, you know, which it, uh, the ship gets into trouble in 1803, you come on the ship as the player character in 1807. By that point in history, the company has really kind of changed its outward attitude uh, toward its Raj in India. Um, because of the laws in the late 18th century, because of this kind of more I wouldn't say direct control by parliament or by the crown, but really kind of a more direct interest in the company's activities coming from Britain. The East India Company, at least outwardly, has to begin to talk about how they are you know, no longer corrupt, how they instead are trying to encourage the uh, development of the subcontinent, not just economically, but then also through education and culture. Uh, and adept, uh, at least making the attempt to appear as though they are ruling uh, with a velvet glove rather than an iron fist. Uh, and the company's rule of India during this era was still marked by several rebellions, by several uprisings. Uh, but at the same time, going into the early 19th century, there's less and less of concern on the part of uh, the British people, the parliament, the crown, that the company is actually engaging a lot of the corruption uh, that they were concerned with, uh, with Warren Hastings uh, and others in the late 18th century. Uh, and of course, though, uh, this doesn't mean that the company uh, is really uplifting the local population. And in fact, they are putting down uh, rebellions after rebellions um, throughout the course of the 19th century. And this culminates, of course, in the uprising of 1857, uh, which finally brought down uh, the East India Company's rule of uh, India, and it transferred uh, the company rule uh, to the British Raj, uh, so under uh, India under the direct control uh, of the crown. Uh, so, as far as you know, the question and how it relates to uh, what's going on with the EIC, you know, going into the 18th century, 
Uh, I would say the EIC is kind of uh, leading the charge in the subcontinent. Um, but then going into the 19th century, it's really the crown beginning to, uh, and the parliament uh, by extension, beginning to have a more direct influence. And as far as uh, other colonizers are concerned, particularly with France, um, you know, the parliament uh, and the crown, they're interested in having the EIC there because it prevents uh, other colonizers from having a role in the subcontinent. Uh, but that again begins to come into question in the late 18th century because it looks as though the East India Company might cause a war uh, with one of those other uh, colonizing forces or with local forces, uh, which would lead to another outside group uh, having a role in Indian society. So it's kind of a fine balance, but by and large throughout the 18th century in particular, uh, the Crown and Parliament are very happy to have the East India Company in control because it prevents other rival groups like France uh, from uh, playing a role <laughs> in the subcontinent. Um, so that was a really long-winded answer, uh, but hopefully that tackles that issue related to the East India Company. To underscore sort of the delicate balance between the two groups, the government uh, and the East India Company, the Navy was stationed in, in the India, Indian Ocean, which was a huge station. It stretched all the way from uh, Cape Colony, which in today, which today is South Africa, all the way to basically to Canton in China, and all of the dockyards they had to use and the authority they had to deal with in India was the East India Company, their property and their administrative system. So, even though the navy, so the navy um, answered to the Admiralty in London, this, but the same way that the East India Company ostensibly was being regulated by also by London, but the distance of about four months meant that things actually in India were a little bit more touchy and required more negotiation between the two groups. So yeah, fascinating stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah, essentially British policy when it came to the EIC, mm -hmm. uh, they only really got involved when something had gone really, really badly. Right, and so from their perspective, people like Warren Hastings, um, you know, the Nabobs, that was when something went yeah. really bad. Was that they were making um, a lot of poor decisions uh, and poorly managing uh, the subcontinent. Um, and uh, you know, the concern throughout all of this, and this is really important to realize, the concern without all of this is that is not a concern with the local population. Their concern instead is with uh, you know how Britain looks to the outside world uh, and then whether or not the activities yeah. within India are going to precipitate a war that Britain has to pay for. Those are the main concerns. It's not a concern at this point with the local population. Um, and you know you can see that right through uh, to the uprising in 1857, right The company under uh, you know British uh, sovereignty, the company under British sovereignty, is putting down violently putting down a series of revolutions, um, yeah. and you know, 1857 just happens to be a bigger version of those kind of uprisings of those revolutions. Uh, so this is uh, the Company Raj is not one that <laughs> oh, um, yeah. should any should make anybody feel nostalgic, right? Uh, this was a brutal, brutal regime that was only allowed to exist because uh, it didn't have. Uh, a spectacular disaster, disaster until <laughs> wow. 1857.
It's not like this is some sort of uh, benevolent rule, right? They made a big uh, song and dance about um, increasing education, about getting rid of uh, draconian uh, caste policies in India. Uh, But by and large, they are there to make money. They are there to raise tax revenues. Uh, They are there to, um, you know, fill their pockets uh, and to make money off the backs of uh, the local population. So um, the EIC, you know, throughout its history, uh, they are about one thing, right? They're about increasing wealth and generating revenue. Um, and that is that is the background uh, for this game. Uh, all right. Well, let's uh, go on to our last question. And this is a, a spoiler heavy question. So if you haven't played the game and you don't want any part of it to be ruined for you, uh, please go ahead and stop this now. Uh, but we are going to talk about some of the elements that come in uh, in the late game, in particular the fantastical elements related to the game's story. Um, so we've already discussed the use of the pocket watch for the character to essentially time travel to uncover the mysteries of the ship. Uh, but during the course of that work, you also come across some pretty fantastical nautical terrors. Uh, and this includes uh, running into mermaids, uh, and then also, uh, most spectacularly, a kraken. Um, so how did these kinds of mythical creatures fit in with the genuine concerns of sailors during this era of history? Um, you're getting in- enlightenment ideas and new understandings about the natural world over the course of the 18th century. But the sort of creation of hard sciences um, and and other disciplines is something which happens over the course of the 19th century. So how I would imagine Seeker has understood um, sort of mythological creatures at this time would be sort of uh, an understanding that maybe some of the stuff isn't true, but also maybe it could be true. Um, Because at this time, people are starting to do a lot of exploration. Uh, Cooks only just visited... uh, Australia in the last 20, 30 years. They're visiting Hawaii. They're visiting the coast of, of Western Canada and Western, the Western United States. And they're seeing all sorts of things that, and the Arctic uh, or the Antarctic. So they're seeing all sorts of things right now at this period that, that defy explanation, but are also causing people who would like an explanation to think about how this would function scientifically. Other things that are happening at this time would be the first stirrings of paleontology, looking at fossils in on the coast of England and thinking, where do these actually sit in the history of the world? Not in terms of a biblical world, but in terms of like a geological world. And, mm-hmm. uh, I actually poked around and tried to find some actual books about this, Um, not modern books, but historical books. And there's actually a great book online that's totally free um, on archive.org, I think, called Henry Lee's Sea Monsters Unmasked and Sea Fables Explained. And it is from 1883. Um, And it actually covers all, most all the fantastical creatures in this game and has some great theories about where Krakens, where the um, history of Krakens comes from. And he goes through all their mythological 
uh, stories and things. And there's actually this fascinating chapter on sea serpents where he basically theorizes that sea serpents are actually giant squid that we just see the head of the squid popping out and then all the tentacles flailing through the water. (laughs) That is the source of anyway. um, But because the other thing that is rising Mm. right now is the as folklore as a subject of inquiry. Uh, so historic, so folklorists are going into the countryside, again, linked to nostalgia, to this idea that there is a idealized English past or Scottish past or Irish past that is slipping away and must be preserved in records. So these folklorists are going out, they're collecting old stories, they're collecting um, songs. They're collecting snapshots of ways of life. Um, people are writing books like Thomas Hardy is really famous for writing sort of nostalgic agricultural stories. And they're, they're trying to save these mm. like old fashioned ideas, but they're also trying to piece together why these beliefs originated. So the mythological creatures in the sea would be one of those things. But yeah, it's, Mm. it's, that is, I think one of the high points of the game, you sort of go along thinking this is like a normal game, except for obviously the timepiece. And then it's like giant squid. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's really, it's really offsetting because, you know, you get through, I think it's the first couple of chapters in the book or, you know, like it, it starts you at the end basically. But you get through the first couple ones and you're like, oh, okay, they just murdered each other for some reason. And and maybe maybe there was some illness too. Uh, there was obviously a storm, you know, but then then you get into the middle portion of the game and it's like, oh my goodness, what is going on here? All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of History Respawn. Megan, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you.